I will guarantee you none of our listeners are going to know this. Okay. So this is going to be a brand new story. And because we like to highlight things in Ohio, you know, that makes it particularly an iconic Ohio UFO event um, has happened here. Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files, a personal, purposeful exploration of the weird and strange. In the last few weeks, we've eaten our way through conversations, cemeteries, and, well, people. But this time, we're doing something totally different. In a rare excursion since the pandemic began, we've ventured just a bit away from home to meet some fascinating folks. Outside, of course. Several years ago now, before we had started the Q-Files, Shane and I had discussed creating a show around unique people and groups of people. You know, folks that have quirky groups or obscure hobbies. It never materialized, but the thought lives on in episodes just like this. A community building itself around the investigation of UFOs in a location that was unexpected, at least to us. I've learned that the best adventures Lori and I take often have a way of finding us. The universe plops something down. We share it and immediately know we have to explore it further. This was one of those times. I opened my phone one morning to see I had a text from Lori. Still groggy, my contacts dry, and not even having left bed, I quickly opened my phone expecting something curious or funny. It was a link to an article from the Columbus Dispatch. UFO believers in Circleville having their moment. I mean, what is this? I don't recall exactly what Lori said in her text, but I know we were both excited, and later that morning, coffee in hand, In the serendipity of having one of the group leaders as a Facebook friend, I sent a message asking if we could chat with him or any of them. And would you believe that they were having their big annual homecoming meeting just a week later? We secured ourselves an invitation. Exciting in itself, but we quickly learned that this meeting was not only special because it's a homecoming of sorts, it's particularly special because it takes place on the Stevenson Farm. If you're anything like us, you were probably unaware of Bruce Stevenson's UFO sighting, the alleged recovered craft that preceded his sighting, or maybe even unaware that Circleville, Ohio is actually a place that exists. As a quick aside, Circleville is famous for its pumpkin show, the largest festival dedicated to the uh, well pumpkin and billed as the greatest free show on earth. And arguably, it indeed is. Circleville is also more notoriously known for, as some of you true crime buffs may be aware, as a location of the Circleville letters. Thousands of mysterious letters that were sent over a period of 30 or so years and led to at least one strange death, a trial, and plenty of conspiracy theories. But anyway, back to Lori. Circleville is about 30 miles south of Columbus. It's a smaller town, but still boasts over 13,000 citizens. It has a fascinating story about why it's called Circleville, but that's a story for another time. And much to our excitement, several historical UFO sightings and RUFOS, the Round Town UFO Society. Founded in 1989 by Pete Hardinger, John Fry, and Delbert Anderson, as a group, they have been meeting once a month for 31 years. In November of 1988, I joined MUFON, and I went up to a Columbus meeting uh, they had going on, and I asked them up there, I said, you know, I've had along to other national organizations, always ask who's my fellow members who live by me. Well, NICAP gave him a list of the Ohio members. 
and Delbert Anderson was sitting right behind me at the meeting from Laurelville. I got him to join. I went and seen John Fry, lived in Circleville, and went down to see him. And us three, we formed the Roundtown UFO Society that met at my house for about the first seven months. And then we met at uh, the uh, Clark May Museum there, right beside John's house, for a few years, wasn't John? And then several years, and then we, uh, the new Circleville Library opened up, and we met there. In 31 years of meetings, probably missed maybe six monthly meetings. We met every month for 31 years because we know it's real and just informing the public. On the evening of the meeting, Lori and I met up and started our journey south. It wouldn't be a long trip, 40 minutes or so, but it was the first time we would be deliberately spending time with a group of strangers this year. Besides nervousness born of plague, our excursion would be taking us to rural Ohio. Trips to conservative areas always leave lingering doubts in the back of your mind. Small fears quickly exacerbated by mile after mile of Trump campaign signs. We timidly pressed on, shielded by our curiosity and excitement. Fortunately, our contact Cameron would be meeting us at his home before guiding us to the farm where the meeting was to take place. Running behind as usual, we parked out front on a wide street, just off center of downtown Circleville. Cameron popped out of his house to say hi and let us know that he was also behind schedule. Running on gay time is universal. After waiting a few more moments, exchanging introductions made awkward by masks and the new uncomfortableness of shaking hands, we shared some quick conversation and finished our cigarettes. Pulling onto the road and making a shockingly quick trip to the country, Lori rolled down her window to take photos and potentially some video, saying, I hope the road is winding with a big reveal of the farm. It wasn't. We were there in practically an instant. We are pulling up to the iconic Stevenson Farm in Circleville, Ohio, where a 1948 Ohio UFO event. The farm sits not too far off the road leading there. A gravel drive took us back to some buildings and aging white barns. It looked like a farm, plenty of trees and greenery surrounded by fields. But we were curious if the barn towards the back was the one from the Stevenson sighting story. We jumped out of the car, walking over to our hosts Cameron and John, eagerly ready to begin. Now John, what, what paper was that where it was originally reported when the story broke 52, right? Yeah. That Bruce Stevenson had the model of what he saw. Yeah, it was in July 1952. Pete's got a whole pamphlet on that booklet, July 1952. And was that the Herald? Yeah. Oh, wow. But it made Associated Press. It's mentioned in Jacques Vallee's Anatomy of a Phenomenon and and Jim Mars's the Alien Agenda. Oh, that's, that's one of my that was one of my favorite books when I was a teenager. Well, Anatomy of Phenomena is the first book written by a scientist on UFOs back in '64. Yeah, who Jacques Vallée still alive. Jacques Vallée. Oh, still alive. he's still alive. He's still around. Oh, I know who he is. Yeah, I've, I've read about him the other night. Actually. Now, John, this case um, was not the Circle of Roswell connection, right? No, that that no. was the that was that the weather was balloon. Weather balloon. Okay, so I'm yeah. not going to mention that because a lot of times the Stevenson farm in that case, yeah, like get, this they get mixed up. I first got that confused. 
Yeah. So he actually reported it in 52 because there were saucers over Washington, yeah, D.C. or something. Executive week, so he thought it was going to be made public. Yeah. Because yeah. President Truman even was talking about it. I said, yeah, I get briefing on it every day. Yeah. So I thought, well, it's going to be made public, so yeah. no one's going to make fun of me. <laughs> right, right. And then he ended so up being on. It was four years between the event yeah. and... So it was February 1st, 1948, and we're out here at the Stevenson Farm where Bruce Stevenson in the middle of the night, what time was it, John? Probably 1 a.m. Between 1 and 4 a.m., um, he, he came out the back door of his house to check on uh, the hog barn where one of his hogs had recently had piglets. Yes. And it was um, at the door to the house. He looked out, and he looked over here close to where we're standing, and right above the barn is where he saw the craft. And, um, John, how far up? did Bruce um, estimate it was? Was that ever mentioned? Well, it was from there to here. How so far How far up in the uh, sky? I thought it was pretty low to the ground, but it, it, did, it didn't land because he didn't see any landing traces. Classic saucer shape. He even made a model of it that was in the, I think it was in the, the dispatch, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I think um, that in, in the newspaper article, there's a picture of Bruce Stevenson and he's holding a model Yes. Uh, that is representative of what he saw. Yeah. And basically after that, um, his sighting, it was, there wasn't anything, um, the case kind of, you know, he didn't tell anybody at the time, no. you know, he, he had his encounter. And then it was four years later in 1952, following the UFOs over Washington case, which how long was it? Two weeks over Washington, D.C. UFOs yeah, were seen. Yeah, because after the weekend, they were seen and pursued by the United States military. Yeah, there's, Air Force. it was photographed, and supposedly and then, there's uh, video. But and then they, they just shot away from the, gut, you know, the Air Force. Yeah. And he thought, well, this is going to be made public, so I'll go to the Circleville Herald and tell about it. And they made the front page of the paper. Uh, Pete will probably bring the booklet, which tells about it. And there's also a booklet at the tourist center here in Circleville, which... That tells about the Stevenson case. Yes. So it was following the, um, following the UFOs over Washington, what has become to be known, he told his story and it kind of blew up. It was reported here locally in Circleville, but it yeah. also made the um, national a news, right? AP. Yeah. And for a long time, it was really just us in like the UFO community locally here who knew the story and knew the farm. Once a year we come out here and we have one of our monthly meetings out here on the farm where we are now. And if the sky's clear, we do a sky watch just to see, you know, we look and watch for things. We've never seen anything. No, not really. <laughs> Although one guy coming here, years ago, he went, this is the only year he came, he claimed he saw something. Yeah. But I've never seen him since. He's from Chillicothe, so. So yeah, other than us, until here recently, us locally, not a whole lot of people outside the Circleville area, Circleville UFO community, I guess you'd say, knew about the story. But um, now that it was reported and the story's been picked up by other uh, papers here in the Central Ohio area, um, we're getting a lot of people interested in the Stevenson case, interested in what happened. And um, it's definitely an important case for our little community here. And so it's great for that story to kind of be brought out again and for people to know what happened. Because so many of these things, so many of these cases like this just get forgotten about completely. And they just pass out of memory, you know. But, but Pete calls it the, the first classic close encounter because it was pretty close. A pretty close sighting. Yes. Yeah, so it, it was just above the ground. 
So it was very low to the ground, and as you can see here, he wasn't that far away at all. He was near the back of the house looking here, so it really was a really close encounter. Yeah, and it was a state-of-the-art hog barn, so, you know, so why would aliens be in this the hog barn? They probably didn't know what it was. He was a wealthy farmer, and, you know, hog barns like that were not, were very unusual. He had money for a state-of-the-art hog barn, so they would have been illuminated lights. Everybody wondered, what is this? And... But he always stood by his story, and uh, Pete talked to his widow. His widow lived to be very old, and she said, uh, yeah, he never changed his story. And, and by the way, she said, have there been any UFO sightings since? So she was totally uninformed about the phenomenon of UFOs. Wow. Yeah, it shows you, some people think if they don't see it in the newspaper, it doesn't happen. And there's a lady who owns the farm now, Sandy Barthamus, who... Yeah, retired school teacher, yeah. Yeah, from, and she's actually a relative of hers. Um, the Barthamus Park here right outside of town is named after them. But she's, uh, she's a friend to the group, and she yeah. lets us meet here uh, once a year. And um, she's obviously aware of the story of what happened here on her property. And... Um, so it's nice to be able to have access to it when we want to. In the headline, the original headline uh, from 1952, I think it said, a farmer expects lights to come back when it's cold. It never came back. So he did expect possibly that he might see and, them again. And supposedly, uh, Navy intelligence came and investigated it and couldn't find any, any uh, they couldn't debunk it. But uh, it's not, I don't think it's in Project Blue Book files. Blue Book never investigated it. But they did have notice of it. They, they, in the files, they didn't mention it. They were aware of it. Yeah, but I don't think they, they sent a team to, uh, to uh, talk with him because it was four years after the fact. You know. And you know what that tells me is it seems to me just, again, you know, it's in the reporting, but it sounds like he wasn't adverse to being visited again by them. Yeah, no. almost like he was expecting, maybe yeah, even hoping any, for it. He didn't have any bad feelings about it. He didn't think it was scary. Yeah. That's a great reaction, especially um, at that time. I mean, really, that time yeah, know, in the forties. Uh, Pete got interested in it. He, when he was in high school, took a debating class, and the the teacher at Circleville High School said, "Why don't you do a uh, a debate about?" Uh, how come you don't believe in UFOs? B says, what if, what if you do believe in UFOs? So they had to report on that. So he interviewed Bruce Stevenson, you know, and, and got his story, you know. So Pete actually interviewed. Yes. He had a relative who worked for, was a farmhand for Mr. Stevenson, yeah. And Pete had his own experiences at 17 here in Circleville Yeah, 1958. Uh, yeah, right up. Uh, Ten years later. Actually, right. not far from where you parked. Yeah, because there's just a... Uh, it, it was very close to where John lives down the alley from me. It was very close to where we both live. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would have been like two and a half then. There's someone showing up. Yeah. And this one he talked of it folded over on itself yes. or something and, you know, kind yes. of a different saucer. He's got a little pamphlet about it. He even went to a MUFON national meeting and showed Jacques Vallée and he was, he was impressed. And Jacques Vallée, I think, said, could this be a projection image? I mean, it could have been just a projection image. It might have not been a physical craft. Who wow. knows? Wow. I mean, it's all speculation, of course. Speculating is fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't claim that have the answers. Our logo, I mean, is seeking, motto is seeking answers. 
I mean, I'm skeptical of anyone says I know the truth about UFOs or yeah, yeah, because and um, like John just mentioned, it's possibility now, given given the government, uh, Navy, the Navy and government releases and re uh, revelations of the last couple of years, the videos and the admissions from the government, that young people just take it for granted that UFOs are real. You know, like like they're growing up now, just considering it more of a fact than a mystery. What and a that's always kind of what, yeah. What a sea change. I of, mean, when, of, when I was a child, all you heard. Is the giggle factor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're making fun of it. Um, what you mentioned earlier is that that's what we're, that's one of the goals of our group is to try to minimize or erase the stigma that comes with, um, you know, UFOs, and we take it seriously. And it's you know, we would like to see it, per, you know, portrayed in the media as more of a serious topic and not just like. A funny, a funny story to add at the end of a broadcast or something, you know. So we we hope to see that more in the future. I think it's happening, don't you, John? I mean, yeah. with the, the, you got the New York Times, yeah. one of the most well-known, respected, you know, publications, putting out these articles, and they're taking some flack for it too from other from other news media outlets. Yeah. Saying now, now a long time ago, a guy named Haynes wrote a book called The Missing Times: How the New York Times had the history of hostility to UFOs. And now it's opposite. That's changing, yeah. So it's nice to see um, publications like the New York Times putting out these stories, and I think it, it gives, it gives uh, ufology um, a little bit more, uh, an air of respectability, you know. Um, what's the word? Um, like validation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, people are taking it more seriously than they did at one time, which is good. As we were chatting, folks started to trickle in. Cars and trucks and Rufos members, adding excitement and hellos with each arrival. We decided it would be a good moment to take a break, let folks get situated, and for us to hopefully find some shade. It was hot outside. September in Ohio can be like that. If we really think it's evidence for a phenomenon, you know, it's like, belief sounds like a church thing, you know, like, okay, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian because my parents are Presbyterians, therefore I believe I'm a Presbyterian. You know, no, it's, uh, there's evidence for phenomena. He calls himself a knower. He's not yeah. a believer, he's a knower. Yeah, like, I like that. there is a phenomenon. We don't know why it is. We're not saying it's E.T. It could be, a, like, there's a theory now, the multiverse. There could mm -hmm. be, you know, hundreds, infinite number of dimensions that come from, uh, or projections like you yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. Time travelers, interdimensional beings, extraterrestrials, there's all kinds of warm yeah, yeah. all kinds of different um, possibilities. Well, I'm gonna get in shape. Yeah, yeah it's really bad. Yeah. Holy Thank you guys, that was perfect. We walked back over to the car. It wasn't shaded, but there was a breeze and it was away from others and would give us a chance to quickly regroup. We watched the continued train of people pulling in and noticed that most were significantly more prepared than we were, coming with coolers and food. We'd only brought chairs. As we would quickly discover, tonight's meeting is a big one and usually involves a cookout. <laughs> you quit yeah, a little bit of breeze makes a whole the difference. That's a lot of kids. The only problem is she's, what, 80-something? Yep. <laughs> I mean, you can't even get good meat price on it. 
about, how about science? <laughs> uh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, best you could hope for was glue. Glue. Yeah. yeah like, like the old, old horses that didn't. Yeah, all right. Horses, yeah. yeah. I, I'll tell you what, I think they got rid of Dr. Kevorkian too fast. Oh, yeah. Should have given the guy a second chance. Because yeah. uh, he, he provided a service. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How long did they put him away? I don't remember the story exactly. I don't think he actually ended up going away. I think he died before. Did he die outside It was all prison? sort of died before it was all figured out. And I think what he did was going. Yeah. Audio. <laughs> That's right. If you're afraid of dying, you've been living wrong. Yeah. But yeah. now you got to get permission. Is that right? How that works out with the law now? I, the, it's different from state to state. Okay. Uh, it's a state law now, a state law. Water? Water? I would love a water. That would be amazing. Ready? Coming at you. Thank you. We came so unprepared. You would, yeah. Oh, that's very kind Anyone of you. Else? That's Can great. Uh, if you have enough, I feel bad. How many is yeah. in here? I can't tell. Okay. Thank there, you. Thank I you. I put that few more in the back that didn't fit. Well, in. that's very kind. Oh, yeah, that makes all the difference. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's Ooh, I almost brought one, and I thought I didn't want to come rolling into camp with like a whole big thing. Yeah, we're sitting over here in the shade right now because it's so warm over there. Well, go ahead. I wanted to introduce you to my granddaughter and her friends before a whole lot more. Oh, that's who they are. Oh. I don't know. Hey, tell her stick around. They'll learn something. This, this is George. Hey, George, go back. How you doing? Hello. Hey, George. Yes. Huh? Yes, I'm John Fry. You're, you're John, all dressed up. Zach, there's Jerry. Jerry. And there's Cameron. Cameron, Cameron yep. Over here That's me. So I'm Lori. Lori and Shane. Shane. It's like a horse. Would you believe it? Boy. Well, didn't Stephen King write a novel about him? Kuto? <laughs> Now, Cujo is a St. Bernard one. Yeah, oh, Saint Bernard. that water is a lifesaver. Seemingly finding ourselves among friends, or perhaps making fast friends, we found ourselves in a sea of conversation. Conspiracy theories, general weirdness, and of course, UFOs and aliens. There's people in Cleveland, uh, UFO project, they can't believe that we got that coverage. That's fantastic. I'm so glad because that's how we found you. We, we know, we've been interested in UFOs. I don't know why we've never heard of you. So just to find you, we just joined. So we're lifetime members now. It's like the mob, right? Yeah, you can't get out. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, don't compare As I mentioned, they might be doing audio recording. Mafia like or not, we were in. The flurry of personalities and stories, both group stories and personal tales, were piling up. It was almost too much to absorb. But we had found a community of like minded individuals people fascinated by the phenomenon, willing to share their experiences, and ready to spread the gospel that weird is here. While we came specifically searching for the Bruce Stevenson story, we were quickly discovering that the real story was Rufo's, their wealth of knowledge and the fascinating personal and historical tales they were sharing with us. As a stream of people slowed, we formed an ever-expanding circle of chairs in an open grassy area. The area was actually right in front of the original Stevenson Hog Barn, where the UFO had appeared. Settling in, the meeting started with the seemingly continuously expanding group, never fully quieting their side conversations. 
Just put it loudly. You are not. Okay. This means it's January 1989, 31 years. Wow. And it's, of course, the most publicity we've ever had. Because of. Speak up, Pete. I can't hear you. You'll have to get closer. Have to get closer. Oh, wait, there's a virus See, going I told on. You I couldn't hear it. <laughs> We've all heard about the Roswell Institute. People haven't been here before. Circle Bell has a connection with the Roswell Institute. The weather balloon was found on the farm in the western part of the county. And they took the Circle Bell Herald and made national news. The weather balloon was found by Mr. Sherman Campbell. Our member Leo Metzler now owns that land and farms on it, don't you, Leo? Yeah. On the Sherman Campbell farm. And they use that, it's in a book. We never knew about it. it. was in the book that Don Schmidt wrote about. Then uh, five, six months later, the close encounter happened here on the, the farm. Bruce Stevenson didn't go public with it until 1952, four years later, July 1952. Why? Because they were seen over Washington, D.C. on two different, different nights, made national headlines. Bruce went to Herald and told his story and made big public. Now with this other book, Roswell, the Chronological, and it's got uh, this is Sherman Campbell holding the weather bloom right there from the Campbell farm. Oh. That shows, we know it was in the Utah papers. This one here is from the Atlanta paper. It made nationwide coverage about the weather bloom because all, all of them were being seen at that time. Yep, yeah, I might add Kevin Rander, who originally co wrote right. the first Roswell book with Schmidt. We got his uh, Roswell Encyclopedia, and there's a one and a half page entry just about Circleville connection. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that he did, is he didn't thank us for it, but he thanked yeah. us in the original book. We tell the story about here for people that haven't been here. Okay, that's good. Yeah, about uh, one or two o'clock in the morning in uh, February 1st, 1948, Bruce Steves walked out his back door to check out his uh, hog barn. He was sitting over here because he had piglets, and he seen a very bright light coming toward him. It came with him, we estimate about 100 feet from the back of his door. It's ever there. And we have pictures of him showing a model of it. It's a saucer shaped crab with windows on it from that. He watched it and it startled, you know, and it slowly drifted off over his maintenance buildings over here. It went out of sight. Anybody want any stromboli? Oh, man. Okay, well, if you want to, we'll take a break now and then. We'll uh, go to Cameron next, okay? Okay. You guys hungry? Got a little munchies? Well, Leo we took a perfectly timed break at this point, and the stromboli was perfection. You know, there's just something about weird adventures that makes snacks not only necessary, but seems to make them actually more delicious. Though, what meal isn't made better when shared with friends? The meeting was showing itself to be a mix of group history, UFO history, and the reunion of friends. The break was filled with chatter, side conversations, and introductions to more members of the group. We didn't record that part, mostly because we were eating, but I can't state enough how welcoming this group was, even though I was thoroughly distracted by the fact that we had come here for Bruce Stevenson, literally to his farm. And while I don't consider myself an expert on ufology, I was nonetheless blown away to learn that there was a flying disc here in Circleville right before, but around the time of, Roswell. On July 5, 1947, the Circleville Herald ran their Saturday edition with the headline, Flying Disc Believed Found on Pickaway Farm. The article uses quotes but says that Sherman Campbell, 
reported the finding of a star-shaped silver foil-covered object, which he believes is one of the mysterious flying saucers. It continues on to say that discovery of the object was the first reported in the country. A Coast Guardsman on the West Coast had reported photographing one from a distance, but no one had seen one of the flying disks close, end quote. It blows my mind that this happened right here in Circleville. It wouldn't take long for UFO mania to sweep the nation. And just three days later, on July 8, 1947, Roswell, New Mexico would make international news as a location of a downed alien craft. You own the land. Is it okay if we start again? Start again? Yeah. Cameron. Hey, I don't Where's care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks. We're getting a lot, a lot of people, and it's not just our UFO group, but nationally, a lot of people are seeing the, this Elon Musk. Uh, Starlink. Starlink. They're seeing that, and they're they're yep. thinking they're seeing a genuine uh, uh, unknown event. So uh, it's, it's so prevalent now that Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center has put up a picture of, of, of what this looks like on their page. So does MUFON of Ohio. MUFON Ohio, same yeah. thing. We're getting tired of those reports. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we're getting a lot of them. And I personally have witnessed it. I knew it was coming, and I saw it, and it does look pretty. If, if you're not familiar yeah. with what's happening, it does look pretty amazing. Yeah, there's a line of them. You see a line of them. Yeah, it's very, it's very distinctive. Once you see it and know what it is, then you'll recognize it in the future, I think. Yeah, yeah. Columbus Dispatch has an astronomy second. It says it'll get a lot worse. There's going to be thousands more of these. They're supposed to be at least, know. by the time they get done, 42,000. It's not just so Elon Musk. Other people are setting them up, too. So 42,000. Just, yeah. like, just like the drones that, that, that yeah. you know, the, the drones that became really prevalent about 10 years ago yeah. uh, has caused us a lot of Grief. grief because of confusion over what they're seeing now we have this so it's just something else that we have to deal with and kind of take into account when we're getting ufo reports from the public is that are, are they seeing this starlink or yeah. you know the drones the same same deal and before that we had the chinese lanterns yep. i saw chinese I lanterns. saw a ufo at pumpkin show then i looked on the net that's exactly why i saw a chinese lantern they were Didn't selling them at sound. pumpkin show and yeah. letting them off in their you know in their backyards yeah, and we would get ufo one, reports what what cameron does we try to do as an organization is give it a natural explanation first when we get a, don't we, we have to. yeah we, we get really a UFO yeah we report. like to look at obvious things yeah <laughs> i mentioned um i mentioned bob lazar at our last meeting and there was another article um out titled bob lazar may have been telling the truth all along and we talked about this, how um, during the, you know, the information that's come out recently and the, the mention in the article and reports of otherworldly craft, a lot of people are taking a renewed interest and in look into Bob Lazar and his claims of working on these, on these type of vehicles. Yeah. And, you know, Bob has been, Bob has, ever since he's come forward, Bob has been, um, people have tried to discredit him they say he's a liar they say he's a publicity seeker you know this that and the other but I, I think his claims now have more credit than ever I guess you'd say well some of the things that he said uh, for instance the, uh, the the periodic table element 115 uh, yeah. yeah and <laughs> he'd come up with that before anyone had ever even thought about it and he yeah. said you haven't found it yet, but you will. Yeah. And you're going to find out that that's required for some of this 
highest. Yeah, I've been listening to. I think I've probably seen every interview Bob Lazar's ever done. I've seen the new documentary Lazar, and just like ju- judging my like my gut feeling on him, I've never gotten the feeling that he was making this up. Me yeah. either. No. It's like he really. He, he really didn't have anything to gain. Yeah. Because people keep no, asking him to tell the story. Yeah. And yeah. He was very he's very much an unre, an unreluctant, you know, um, yeah. person in the UFO field, I guess you'd say. An unreluctant celebrity. A, re, a reluctant participant. Reluctant is where I'm sorry. I've gotten no I hardly got any sleep last night. Oh. So you know, uh, I'm trying to think. I kind of compare him to people like Bruce Stevenson, Travis Walton, and that. Tell their stories of years ago, and they've stuck to it all through their lives. Yeah, and that's what problems are. He's a kind of a, a reluctant. Thank you. Yeah. And he was always at Area 51, wasn't he? Bob Lazar. Yeah, he worked there. People, people, people you know, I remember there was there was one there was one skeptic who did some research allegedly and said that uh, there was rumors that all Bob Lazar was was a cook out of the base, and then yeah. somebody made the statement, "Well, if that's true, then apparently they're telling the cook at Area 51 <laughs> what, what kind of craft he's, you know, and what time they're going to be in the sky." So. It's, it's been proven he knew Edward Teller, who invented the hydrogen bomb. Now, why would a cook meet Edward Teller? He yeah, re- he recommended him. Teller recommended him yeah. for the job. Well, yep. <laughs> so we're about into meeting then, and if anybody wants to stay for a sky watch, more than the. Happy. It looks a little cloudy, yeah. but... We're going to be watching some cloud power. Yeah. The meeting was over, and I know Lori and I were very excited to skywatch. You can't really do that in downtown Columbus. On a good night, you can see a few stars, maybe a planet. But out here, away from most light pollution, it was a totally different canvas in the sky. Unfortunately, there was some significant cloud cover, The very welcomed breeze earlier had brought with it moisture that was threatening rain and also threatening to end our interviews before they even truly got underway. We set out to find the folks we had chatted with earlier, but this time shoring up the conversations and hopefully now avoiding the background sounds of cars arriving. It was a dark night, country dark. As the sun had set during the meeting, Cameron and others had set about installing a ring of tiki torches just outside the group. We were there for UFOs, but it had taken a slightly ritualistic feel with the sun no longer shining. Gathering our new friends was a new challenge when only lit by the flickering flames. We started interviewing folks nearly as soon as we found them, interrupting ourselves to yell, hey, wait. First up was Chris, one of the group leaders. Tell me when you're ready. Whenever. Okay. My name is Chris France, and I'm the secretary for the Rufos group. It's not a paid gig, but <laughs> but I don't I don't mind doing it either. It's it's good to help the group. I became interested in UFOs and the ufology topic as a young person and have always had an interest as I was growing up. And then, of course, the fateful time in 1995 when Coast to Coast AM started airing in the Columbus market. My husband came home, said, there's this show on, you're going to want to listen to it. It's going to be of interest to you. And so I began listening to it, figured out a way to record it, and had listened to it ever since. And I defy anyone to listen to that program for years on end and not eventually come to the conclusion that there are extraordinarily credible people who have had 
amazing experiences, real experiences, and sightings of UFOs. And so that's how I came to this topic. But then in um, December, actually October of 2017, when To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences was announced, yeah. um, I knew this was something extraordinarily different than anything that had happened in the past in my lifetime. And I decided then, uh, I'm diving in, neck deep. And I started looking for groups that I could associate with and I could learn from. And the Roundtown UFO Society was a group that I had known about for some time. And I just started coming to their meetings and uh, learning from so many wonderful people who were in the group. And uh, they're, they're kind, good people. And we have a good time and share great stories. Yeah. <laughs> Part of my purpose in this kind of goes back to what Pete has shared and that is to share information with other people about what we know what we've learned and the reality of this and I'm not saying that any of us know what it is or what they are or who's driving them but there's a phenomenon out there that doesn't fit Newtonian physics and it seems there's parts of it that even seem to delve into the realm of consciousness and I find those areas absolutely fascinating and so my purpose is learn from folks hear the stories and like what Pete said condition the public and share information with people I had read on the Rufos website in some of the biographies of the members about a gentleman who had his original sighting in Westerville Ohio that's where I grew up and where I had always hoped to have my first sighting. I had approached him earlier in the day, but managed to grab him before he left to give us his full account. My story uh, starts back in early 60s. We had moved from Columbus over to uh, a little town called Central College, a little village. And that's right real close, right next to Westerville. And it's right next to Hoover Reservoir, which is along Sunbury Road there. My dad had a... Uh, a lot, five acres lot, and uh, beyond his lot, there was nothing but woods. Woods, woods, and more woods for miles to hit the next country road. Back then it wasn't developed like it is today. So, uh, we, my older brother and I, one day, we would go out in the wood and we were playing, and we had, we were going a little ways out there, and we uh, found a little bale of hay. And we cut down a little maple sapling. It was very big. And we turned it into a spear. So we were just acting, playing, throwing this spear at this bale of hay. And all of a sudden, beyond us, and uh, you could see it from where that light is, right about that distance there. I, what is that, 250, 200 feet? Something like that. This thing stood up. We saw it stand up. It was a silhouette for us because beyond that, it was standing in front of a, a batch of trees and beyond those trees was another open space and it was sunny so we saw the sun behind it and it turned it into a silhouette but it was like eight feet I was guessed about eight foot tall but it stood its arms out which is something strange too straight out to both arms out to the side and then it screamed and roared and scared scared the bechibis out of us so we both just ran home 
at that point, and I was the first time I could keep up with my older brother running. But uh, we went back, and then we, we talked to Mom and Dad, and, and they probably thought, well, maybe you just saw a bear. You know, so we, they just left it off. Well, you know, I didn't think too much more about it. They didn't, nobody said anything. I didn't hardly have it. But later on, as time went on, and this was back probably in the 70s, I came across some people that moved. I was going to Columbus State Community College. It was actually CTI then, Columbus Technical Institute. And I met a woman who had lived there, close there, and she had found a, a I don't know if it was a dead cow or something there, that mutilation, you heard the mutilations and stuff? She had found something that had been mutilated in that respect. So that would happen. We found out there was a home for the uh, aged and the deaf there. Columbus Colony, I think. They, I don't know if they still call it that, but it's called Columbus Colony. And behind them they had a chicken coop or hutch. And they said that something had gotten in it, destroyed it, and it took some of the chicken, and they found feet print going out into the woods, which was basically maybe a quarter mile down from us, where we went out into the woods. So uh, we, that happened. And then later on, and that's, so I didn't really think too much about it, and I didn't say, say much for, for a long time. The people at work would make fun of me when I'd say something about Bigfoot, of course. And, but then, um, Later on, I, I, started, I started to learn how to do websites, and I wanted to do a real website for somebody, so I called Pete. That's when I started coming down. That was probably 2006 or seven, and then so I started doing that, and I started putting a website together. But the, the one thing that's neat about that is when you start coming down and going to the, the meetings with them, you start hearing all kinds of stories, and then you start seeing, actually it was like a piece, it was like a puzzle. They started putting together because we had another thing that happened to us at the at the Sunbury Road. When we were standing out in our orchard, which is something something also uh, you know that's in a lot of stories you hear about Bigfoot is that orchards, apple orchards, they like fruit, the apple trees. There's cherry trees, pear tree there, and we, that was there. And another thing I forgot to tell you about was that my two younger brothers were upstairs. There's almost second level of the thing. They had seen two red eyes staring in the windows. They screamed, a blood-curdling scream, and we were trying to figure out what that was going on. So that happened there at the house, too. So, but anyway, that it was, it was when he let me come down here is when I started getting into this stuff, and some of the stuff that I was wondering about started to come together like a little puzzle. So, and so it's been going that way ever since. I've done some research, and I've done some investigation for MUFON, so I was, I was a MUFON. They still have my name as an investigator, but I have backed off and stuff like that. And I've seen some, some weird stories going on. We also had to get Pete. He was, after all, one of the group founders and seemingly had an extensive wealth of knowledge. He was part history, part local historian, part local UFO expert. His story and his sighting are worth sharing. Yeah, my name's uh, Pete Hardinger. Actual name's Robert, but I go by the uh, nickname of Pete. In uh, February of uh, 1958, me and my friend was going to a high school basketball tournament at the local Coliseum uh, in Circleville. And we seen a bright uh, red revolving light at the edge of town. We drove out by it and didn't see it anymore. So going back to Lancaster Pike to go to the Coliseum, it came right alongside of us, off the side about 100 foot to the side of us on uh, Lancaster Pike. And it just cleared the... Uh, Paragrounds Coliseum, and we can almost see the reflection off like a window in there. 
was very bright. And it went away, and uh, we couldn't find it no more. I came home and told my brother uh, uh, about it. And uh, five days later, he uh, was uh, watched the late movie at that time period. Late movies end about 1 o'clock in the morning on TV. And he heard the dog barking in the back door. He let the dog in after he let it out and let it back in. Went upstairs, and he looked out the window because what I told him, what, what I'd seen five days ago, and he'd seen, a, he'd seen the object, the saucer-like object in the sky, round in that very bright he came over and was dragging me out of bed and I told him hey leave me alone I got to go to school the next day it was Thursday night and I was uh, in, or, I think it was Thursday anyway and I had to uh, go to school the next day and I seen he was excited so I went to the room bedroom and looked out and I got right, wide awake then because a very bright light I seen I couldn't see no shape on it that because it was going over Eshman's mill at the time about 2,000 feet up in the air I could see the clouds around it and it kept going out toward the west over Circleville slowly went out of sight in my own mind I was trying to think my goodness I mean these things must be real in that when then the odd thing happened a red orange ball of like the setting sun came back toward us come back toward us and I was like I said I was about ready to crawl underneath the bed because that was happening but then it stopped in midair and you can imagine the top half folded down to it into itself in sections from right to left I still remember so it was a half moon shape and then it tilted and then went down to the ground and that just blew our mind you know and we, we stayed awake for maybe a couple of three hours. And I remember uh, there on Clinton Street, a, a police car went by the warehouse there with a searchlight on. So nobody must have uh, heard about it. I know a brother said, well, let's run down the street. So what happened to us? No, no, we'll let other people say they saw it and then we'll back them up. Well, nobody else came forward and said about it. So I do remember going to school the next day and two girls were going down the hallway. And, and I heard one of them say, well, that was really big, wasn't it? And I didn't want to ask him, but that's the only thing I heard about it. And then that was when I was a junior in high school, and I was a senior in high school, I took a public speaking class because I was kind of shy in school, and I thought, well, maybe one of these days I want to talk about these flying saucers or whatever. So one day in public speaking, Robert Ransom, our public speaking teacher, said, okay, students, let's do a story like why you don't believe in flying saucers. And I about to come out of my chair, so what if you do? So he said, well, go study it. And because of that, I come out, I'd heard about the Bruce Stevenson case, come out and interview Bruce, I'll never forget him telling me, he said, no, you're young enough, maybe you'll find out what this is all about. Well, I'll be 80 years old next January, and I'm still, you know, researching it, but, you know, that uh, led me in to also join an organization. Uh, there was APRO organization out in New Mexico, then NICAP in Washington, D.C. Well, I, I leaned toward Washington, D.C. because being in the nation's capital, and Major Kehoe was the director, he was a former Marine and also I found out that Admiral Hillencotter was on the board of directors. But people don't know it, Admiral Hillencotter was our first CIA director. So that gave a lot of credibility to it. So when I was 18 years old, I joined NICAP uh, for 20-some years till it dissolved. And I uh, was a member of uh, Center for UFO Studies out of Chicago, Illinois. Very prestigious. In November of 1988, I joined MUFON. And I went up to a Columbus meeting. Uh, they had going on, and I asked them up there. I said, you know, I've, I've had long to other national organizations. Always ask who's my fellow members live by me. And went well. NICAP gave me a list of the Ohio members, and Delbert Anderson was sitting right behind me at the meeting from Laurelville. I got him to join. I went to see John Fry, lived in Circleville. Went down to see him, and us three we formed the Roundtown UFO Society. In 31 years of meetings, probably missed maybe six monthly meetings. We met every month for 31 years because we know it's real and just informing the public you know 
and uh, so that's that's where I stand at. Finally, we were able to chat with Cameron. He had been a wonderful guide to us and helped us be introduced around all evening. His story was one that we knew before arriving, even if it did come as a welcome surprise when we reached out after reading their article in the dispatch. Sometimes as a member of the LGBTQ community and also a member of the ufology community, sometimes it does seem um, a little lonely in that it seems like there's more um, gay representation sometimes in even the ghost hunting groups and believe it or not the Bigfoot community than there is the, the UFO community. But um, it's something I would like to see more of, like, you know, um, being gay and being um, really passionate about ufology are, um, it's just something that I've always been open about, both, you know, being gay and, you know, my interest in UFOs and my local group here is a really small town. They've all been really supportive. I've never had anybody make any kind of derogatory comments to me or anything. Um, there is, there's also this, something that I was thinking about earlier, there's this new breed of conspiracy theory where there you've got like QAnon and Pizzagate and you know, like the Obama birther thing and this, and I, I do think sometimes that ufology is getting unfairly lumped into that. And um, you know, that kind of extremist kind of conspiracy theory that, that's so prevalent now. And even traditional conspiracy theorists, which I think of myself as in a way, I, I think it's unfair because to be um, the way ufology is getting thrown in because that couldn't be further from the truth. Like, you know, um, myself and my group, you know, just because we're into UFOs, that, that doesn't mean that we subscribe to this, this whole wider angle of what this new kind of breed of conspiracy theory is. And, and I hate to see that, but I would like to see more. Like I said, the UFO commu community tends to be older and more conservative than say, other parts of the paranormal world mm -hmm. so like i'm always like when i go to these ufo events i'm always the youngest and i'm probably the only member of the lgbt community there that i that i'm aware of so it definitely feels like i definitely feel kind of lonely like i said in that angle but but i've always been very warmly accepted by my group and um by by the other groups that we're associated with so, um, yeah, I've never felt any kind of, like, judgment or anything like that. How does the gay community react to you being into this? Well, they just seem like two very different worlds, I guess. Like, like, um, like I know, I know my, my boyfriend thought it was very interesting when I told him about it. It's not something he heard before. It's just kind of, it seems kind of like when I say that I help run a UFO group and I'm a member of a UFO group. To some of my gay friends it just seems kind of foreign to them like it's just not something they would expect of me being gay i guess but i've always been very um i've always since i was a you know very young i've always been very interested and fascinated with with all things mysterious mysterious so um like i'm really into ufology that's like my main thing but i'm also study cryptozoology and and i do some research there and i've always been interested in the world of the paranormal so, um, like that's why I remember I kept that article from the, um, your guys' other group, the, the gay ghost hunter group, because like I saw that and like, I remember I saved that copy of Alive because I was like, that's just great. Cause I just didn't see that very much. 
Like I just, I didn't see that kind of blending of people passionate about the paranormal and like the LGBT community. It's just not something I saw that often. On July 23rd of this year, the New York Times ran this headline. No longer in shadows, Pentagon's UFO unit will make some findings public. A somewhat anticlimactic lead to what would be in reality explosive content. First of all, Pentagon's UFO unit? What the heck? The article would continue to offer evidence of the fact that the U.S. government had been and was investigating UFOs, both in the sky and even those that might have crashed to Earth and been collected, a notion the government had denied since 1947. And they were investigating it through an official government program called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. And even more astounding were these lines. Eric W. Davis, an astrophysicist who worked as a consultant for the Pentagon UFO program since 2007, said of the crafts, we couldn't make it ourselves. Mr. Davis said he gave a classified briefing to a Defense Department agency as recently as March about retrievals from, quote, off-world vehicles not made of this earth, end quote. Think about that for a moment not made of this earth. These revelations were also highlighted because of the recent government release of U.S. Navy fighter pilot videos that seemed to capture something indeed not made of this earth and witnessed by some of the most credible observers that any sighting has ever had. If you haven't seen these videos yourself, you must check them out and see the mysterious white tic-tac as described by Navy pilots, whose shape and movement defy all earthly characterizations. Believe your eyes. Shane and I, of course, shared this information with each other in a mood of much glee and surprise. And then we noticed no one was talking about it. No one, especially on social media, was discussing the fact that the U.S. government was investigating UFOs and being informed that there were indeed vehicles flying our skies that were, quote, not made of this earth, end quote. People had spent their entire lives trying to get the government to admit this. And here it was. Only in 2020 could this kind of revelation be received by the American public with nothing more than the shrug of its shoulders and a collective, unimpressed, meh. A worldwide populace wearied by economic distress, death, and illness was much more interested in the latest celebrity that had contracted the COVID disease. The potential that aliens might really exist, ironically, didn't really even hit the radar. Only in 2020. But the members of Rufos had gobbled up these new revelations, and there was a palpable feeling of vindication, at least for this moment. This is what they had been saying for 31 years, that this phenomena, whatever it is, needed to be investigated and recorded and released publicly, and to a certain extent celebrated. What a fascinating, enchanting, and wondrous notion that otherworldly beings are indeed somehow among us. Believe your own eyes. That is the inspiring spirit that Rufos exudes. In the end, our final conversations were what this group is really about, a diverse group of individuals finding a common connection and building friendships around that, and 
believing each other. And what we found were people of all ages, men and women, and even LGBTQ folks working together to spread information, fight stigma, and share in the wonders of the universe. In looking for aliens or life elsewhere, we found community right here on Earth, just down the road a bit. If there is any hope for the future of this country, it will be found in evenings just like this. Moments spent with newfound friends, looking at the world and sky, and wonderment. We really did become members, and in fact, we joined Rufos again for their October meeting. November was canceled due to COVID-19. But in October, we watched a screening of The Phenomenon, shared more conversation, and promised to have this episode out earlier than it actually happened. Rufos has members across the country. We were told that sometimes folks move away, and other times folks not local just want to join. They have monthly meetings, and at least in our experience, guests are always welcome. You can get in contact with Rufos through their website, roundtownufosociety.com, or find them on Facebook and Twitter, also under Roundtown UFO Society. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q Files. <laughs> oh my gosh, I haven't seen those Wow. I've got to take a picture of my bugles. Since I've seen those, I picked that bag Did you? I have to say, I mean, bugles. Holy Toledo.